Last week we were talking about uh, Christ coming, entering into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Everybody's all excited. Everybody's in town. Uh, think of uh, any major event that you would uh, go up to San Francisco or, or New York City, you know, Times Square, uh, the ball dropping, beginning a new year. That's what Jerusalem is like for Passover weekend. And uh, we talked about how they'd already decided they wanted to uh, get, uh, uh, wanted to arrest Jesus, wanted to keep him, prevent him from doing anything during that week. So that leads us up to this point. And one of the unique aspects of, uh, of Christianity and our faith is we trace it all back to this one amazing week. One week and so many different things happened. And then late on that Thursday night, the most bizarre thing happens. Our leader, our God, our founder, Jesus Christ, is taken into custody. And we read that and we usually kind of jog right past that and keep going. Let's, let's get to the nuts and bolts of the story. But reality, this is God himself allowing to be bound by rope to be tied up, to be shackled by the very things that he actually created on this earth. He's being bound. I mean, 10,000 angels being held back, wanting to rescue him. Jesus goes through this humiliation this time over and over and over. Through that night and through the next day, and he's executed at 3 p.m. on a Roman cross. They executed the most innocent man to ever live. Fully man, full of God. And yet, the most amazing thing is, it's not necessarily the travesty. It's not the, the injustice. This is actually planned out by God to save you and me, to save us from our sins, because there's nothing that we can do to get to heaven on our own. It takes a Savior. It takes paying for those sins. And Jesus Christ is the one to do that. The scriptures say that we're like sheep that have gone astray and everybody has turned to their own wicked way. So Jesus comes and, and like the great apostle Paul says, he, he comes because we were dead. We were dead in our sins. I can remember a time in, in high school, and I think I've mentioned this before, but, uh, uh, you know, I come in, uh, my curfew was midnight and, and we held to that. And the one time I decided to stay out later, I come in, and they're always asleep. They always trusted us. I came in about one in the morning, just out goofing around with a friend, not doing anything bad or anything like that. My dad is up because my uncle came in town, and they're all just sitting there. I come in, and he just looks at me, just shakes my head, and goes, go on to bed. And I'm, I'm walking to bed, and he goes, dead man walking, <laughs> you know? What Paul is saying here is more significant than, than Alan as a teenager. But it just, dump, it just jumped out at me. We were dead to our sins. We're dead men, dead women walking. We're on our way to the execution chamber until Jesus came. But what's interesting is, is Paul is talking to people who were alive, and it's a fascinating spiritual thing to be alive, and yet we were already dead. But God brought you back to life. 
He forgave us of our sins by paying for those sins. He canceled the charge. He, he canceled our, you know, our legal indebtedness, which condemned us by nailing them to the cross. And in doing so, what he did is he disarmed uh, our accusers in, in this public triumph. So this, uh, you know, helps explain how a man who, who died around 30 or 33 AD, depending on how, you know, how you count the years, but it relates to our lives. It related to, to, to back then, but it also relates to, to our lives and our deaths today. If we could wrap our minds around what he's talking about. Paul just said, Jesus disarmed our accuser. Jesus took away the case from the prosecuting attorney. He, you know, he took the weapons of accusation and, and, and the punishment out of the hands of our enemy. And the only way the enemy can get those back is if we hand him back the weapons. My son, uh, my, my wife uh, was taking our little one to the doctor last night to one of the clinics. Uh, he always seems to get sick on the weekends. We're like, can't you do it during the week? We got a great doctor, you know? But it always happens on the weekends. So my other son, uh, my six-year-old Brandon, you know, we're, we're playing and, and, and he's wanting to fight ninjas, you know, and gets out all his weapons, you know, his, his play swords and all that kind of stuff. And ever so often he'll steal them from me. I got all your weapons. And then he'll come back and he'll stick them by my feet and he'll go, oh no, you got all your weapons back. That's how we are with Satan. Jesus has come and taken all those weapons away from him and what have we done? We've gone and got those weapons, and we go back and we hand them back to Satan. Here, accuse me of this again. When we become fully aware of what it means to be believers and, and followers, then we don't have to fear death. That fear starts to dissipate a little bit. They become less and less fearful of death. But not only that, because our fear of life also dissipates. We don't have to, you know, fear what's going on in our life because, you know, trace everything back in life. Most of our problems were fear-based, right? If you think about the problems that you have, they're mostly fear-based. Well, what are people going to think of me? What am I, you know, right now, Brandon's always, what is dad going to think of me? What is mom going to think of me? What is my teacher, you know, what, any authority figure, what are they going to think of me if I do this? You know, he's six. But we're like that. What is my, what is my family going to think of me? What are other people going to think of me? And it robs us of our life. But we can, be fe you know, we can be freed of these very real fears. Jesus on that weekend fights the battle with evil. And he takes the weapon. That Friday afternoon through Sunday, he fights a battle with evil. And he wins because he was raised from the dead. He rose from the grave. And that brings us a guarantee so that we can go through life. See, we need to understand that Jesus took some things with him, you know, to, you know away from the devil on that weekend. I mean, all you got to do is look at the news. All you got to do is look around us to see how powerful the devil can be, right? Oh, man. He is the great accuser. And he keeps us in this state of hopelessness, of disappointment, Sometimes it can be a physical thing, sometimes it can be a mental thing, a relational thing, or a financial struggle, and the devil keeps just throwing all this stuff at us, and we keep allowing him the, you know, the ammunition to tell us stuff like, God doesn't care about you. 
This Jesus stuff is just a bunch of bull. That's ridiculous. Look at Christians. Their lives aren't any better than anyone else's. Why would you even bother them? And then Easter comes around. Well, everybody else is celebrating Easter bunnies that lay chocolate eggs. I don't, don't, I don't know. We're celebrating the death and the resurrection that God brought, you know, life into us. That brought life into death and life into life. So when our accuser returns, as he often does, he says stuff like, well, who do you think you are? Your family's right about you. How dare you preach to us? We know you. We know what you've done. Who do you think you are? You're never going to amount to anything. This is what the devil brings all those thoughts flooding back, you know, into your mind. After what you did? And we give in to that. And we give the devil the tools of shame. And he shames us. Here's the whip. Go for it humiliate me, strip me down, hang me on the cross. And then we start to remember when we go, well, wait a second. That penalty has already been paid. I've paid my debt to the devil. And we start to realize this. We start to return to Jesus and we ask, Jesus, how do I know it's real? And we start to study and find out he rose from the dead. And not only one person saw him, but hundreds of people saw him rise from the dead. They saw him after that. How do we know that you have the power to forgive us? Well, he proved that on the cross. He proved that. You see, the birth, the life, and the cross, and the tomb are equally important to us as believers in our own life. You know, we don't focus on one without the other. They all go together. The tomb is the proof. The cross is the death. The tomb is the life. It's empty. And because it's empty, it proves our faith is full. You can have faith in empty things. You find out later, you go, man, I shouldn't have had faith in that. Man, I really got messed over on that one. But this empty thing, this empty tomb you can have faith in. This empty tomb is empty for a reason. And at the end of the day, when you're standing before God, the accuser wants to accuse you. And you tuck right in behind Jesus. And Jesus says, I got this. And we answer, oh, I'm glad because I know my life. I know what I've done. And he goes, no, 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 no. I've, I've forgiven you of those things. But the accuser, he looks so good because he's so good at his job. And Jesus says, oh, him, I've already defeated him. Don't worry about him. And we get this pure 100% grace and this pure 100% mercy into our lives. And it's difficult for us as Christians to receive this. Not because of God. Because of us. We always start with grace. And we move into what I like to call grace plus. We just have to, we just have trouble believing that God could and would forgive us. So let's review what grace and mercy are. Mercy is when we don't receive what we deserve. I give mercy to my son all the time. You know what I'm saying? He does something, and sometimes I just, you know, okay, no big deal. And the other times I'm like, no, this is a big, no, 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 no. 
But man, I give him mercy all the time, just as my father gave me mercy all the time, you know? But grace is what we receive when we don't deserve it. I always try to follow up mercy sometimes with grace for him. So he gets the concept, so he understands it, that you don't deserve this, but I'm going to get it for you anyway because I love you. Okay? And not, not from the materialistic side of things, but that's a whole nother ball game I'm trying to teach. But I'm talking about just from the standpoint of that he would understand God's way of dealing with us. So we humbly come to the cross, and the cross is ready for us. The cross is ready for each one of us. We can't sit here and think, I've, do, I, I've done too much. There's no way God would like, you know, like me at the cross. There's no way that God will accept me. I mean, look at what I've done. But, but I tell you, the cross is ready for you because the tomb is ready for you because Jesus is ready for you. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, for all have, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. This is exactly what was happening on the cross that day. God is a just God. He is not going to say, no big deal. No, God's presence is holy. God's presence is pure. You could not enter in God's presence without you being holy and pure. Well, how do you get that? That's what Jesus died on the cross for. His blood covers you. His blood cleanses you. God is so pure. He says, I will offer myself as a sacrifice so you can be in my presence. That's what he's done. And in, so, you know, in doing so, Jesus reverses religion. See, religion is always about bring your sacrifice and you just kind of hope it's enough. You know, should, should my bird be bigger? Should my cow be bigger? Should my bull be bigger? You know, in, in the sacrifices, my goat, you know, does it have a blemish on it? You know, they wouldn't allow a, 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 you know, a, a sheep to be sacrificed unless it was purely, you know, no blemish, no black spots, nothing like that. You know, you know well, I hope they don't see that one on his hoof. You're always wondering, is it good enough? That's what religion says. But God reverses that on the cross. He brings the sacrifice that he knows is enough, and that is himself, and offers it to people. And all we have to do is receive it. We say, I receive your sacrifice. You see how backwards this is? But that's what Christianity is. It's backwards in a sense. This is all we have to do. We receive the sacrifice that he's given. We don't beg God for, you know, beg for the mercy of God. We just have to receive it and say, I receive your mercy. Mercy, remember, we don't get what we deserve. Grace, we, what, we, uh, what we do receive when we don't deserve it. God's saying, I, you know, we need to be able to say to God, I allow you to forgive me, and I forgive myself. You know, we hold on to way too many things in our lives. We hold on to sin for years that distracts us from getting closer to God. Because every time we get closer to God, we think, oh, but I have this one thing. We'll ask for forgiveness and move 
on. Because if we understand that, if we grab a hold of that, we start to understand Easter. The Apostle Paul, I mean, the Apostle John wrote, uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Like I said earlier, the work of the devil is all around us. And when you become a Christian, guess what? The work of the devil is still all around you. It's an amazing concept. As a matter of fact, sometimes they even become worse because you have a new enemy when you start following God, and that enemy is the devil himself. So don't, don't ever let anybody sell you on this Jesus light, you know, Christianity light. Just accept Christ and everything's going to be great in your life. That works for about 48 hours, okay? And then you start getting attacked or you start sinning and different things. And, and in fact, you know, the devil kind of makes sure all hell breaks loose in your life and, and because you have a new enemy. We need to expect that. We need to, in, in a sense, celebrate it actually, recognize it, and then say, I must be saved because I'm being attacked even more now. John knew all this. He saw Jesus die on that day. He saw Jesus resurrect three days later. And he lived for another 50 years. He saw the works of the devil. But he also saw the works of God. He saw the powerful works of the devil. But he also saw the powerful works of, of, of Jesus in this life. John traveled, you know, uh, uh, all over the place. And he ends up in, a, in Turkey in a place called Ephesus, which is a very interesting city. If you ever just look up Ephesus and, and see what the religions were doing in that town. And he's around this. He's walking around Ephesus. And, and the Romans decide that this little old Jewish guy is a threat to their society. And he, because he really was. He was out there talking about Christ. He was talking about Christ's uh, death and resurrection. But God, you know, allowed him to be arrested. And they sent him, you know, John, to, to a place called Patmos, a little island. And this is exactly what John needed because he was very busy. He would stay busy. And, he, you know, all of a sudden he's sitting there going, okay, what do I do now? And God says, okay, now I want you to write. He hadn't seen Jesus for about 50 years but Jesus comes to him and says, hey, John, write this to the church. And in Revelations 1, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. You see, Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. And now that Jesus has those keys, I mean, everyone has had keys in our pockets, Right? I take mine, out, uh, take mine out before I get up here because I would play with them jingling and all that. But, you know, we all have keys. What do they do? They open stuff. They open locks. Why would there need, you know, why would Jesus need the keys? I mean, are people trying to break into hell? <laughs> Not really. Jesus has the keys to get us out of that place. Your friend Jesus has the keys, and this is what we can celebrate. The devil can no longer lock us up, not in this life and not in the life to come. Now, sometimes we get locked in dark rooms, you know? Sometimes it's, it's our fault. We've kind of wormed our way into that place in life, and, and sometimes it's not even our fault. You know, people did stuff to us, or, or we just kind of ended up there. Life just kind of put us there, and, and, and Jesus says, all that is what I call death. And then Jesus comes and we celebrate Easter and we celebrate Jesus opening the doors again and we come out of the darkness. 
I hope this makes sense to you. It does in my mind. But think of everything, you know, people getting locked into this, you know, place where it's absolutely killing them. And people not, you know, allowing you to live your life that's supposed to be your life. You know, even if it's just the fear of death. You know, I, I probably fear pain more than I fear death. You know what I'm saying? Oh, Brandon, I mean, Band-Aid. I mean, he went through this time that he would get a cut and he would want to cover it with a Band-Aid, but he wouldn't want the Band-Aid put on because you had to take the Band-Aid off. I mean, if it was around the foot, oh, the the, the hair on the foot, oh, I mean, he would scream bloody murder, you know. And it's a little bitty, you know, just a little scratch or something. You know, when I die, I want to die like my uncle, uncle Bob did. He, he died peacefully, sleeping. I'm not saying that we should uh, stop fearing death and take dumb risk. But that we should take good risk in this life. I don't want to cower in this life and, and never take a risk and, and hide in a closet. Now, at the same time, I'm not saying that if, if you're a Christian, you know, just jump out of a plane without a parachute. You know, I mean... You know, I heard a saying the other day, if, you, if at first you don't succeed, then parachuting is not for you, okay? <laughs> Think about that one for a second. Well, let's get into the story. We're going to, be Mark, we're going to start in Mark uh, 16 here. It says, when the Sabbath was over, uh, Mark 16, 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and uh, uh, Salmon brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone at the entrance of the tomb? That's a big old stone that they would make a groove and they would roll the stone over um, because they would use the tombs multiple times. Um, and, you know, it would be like a family tomb. So they'd make it with that stone, but it took a lot of people to do that. So they're sitting there going, who's going to do that? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they'd entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, you might remember they, they had a scene where, where Joseph of Nicodemus placed Jesus' body there in the tomb, and, and now Jesus is gone, the stone is rolled away, and the body's not there, and there's a young man clothed in white sitting there. And they have the nerve to, uh, and he has the nerve to say this to them. Verse 6, it says, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembled and, uh, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know, it amazes me that no one said, wait, this is just like he said. Jesus was always talking about his, his death, right? He, he talked about it. He compared it to Jonah, and three days later, he'd rise on the... And, I mean, he was always talking about his death, but they didn't realize it. They didn't say, wait a second, this is exactly what he said. Now, in their defense, how could they understand half of, you know, what Jesus uh, was teaching? You know, it, took, it was a lot. But we have history on our side. We, we read the Old Testament uh, in the light of the New Testament. These guys were living in the light 
of their day. It's a little harder for them to understand sometimes. And John 20, John 20 verse 1 says, early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So they came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Verse 3, it says, so Peter and, and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in and, at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Verse 6, it says, And Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Again, they didn't understand the scriptures or, or what Jesus has said about him rising from the dead. Have you ever been in a crisis where your brain's just going and going really fast? You know, when I was an athletic trainer, I was, uh, started in uh, sixth grade learning how to wrap ankles and, 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 you know, throw people in the hot tub and all this kind of stuff and, you know, for their ankle injuries and knee injuries and, and learning all that. And, and as I went to college on scholarships, so, I mean, I was really into this and, and stuff, you know. And one of the things they teach you in those emergency situations is to slow your brain down. You know, I was with, uh, uh, I think it was ninth grade, and I was, uh, a kid got hit on the field. It was junior high. We were working a junior high game, and so the, the trainer and I, we ran across the field, and, and we got there, and we looked at him, and I looked at the kid's knee, and his, his kneecap was supposed to be in the front, and it wasn't anymore. It was in the back, okay, on the side, because he got hit, and it, you know, it tore it off, and it went around. And I went, oh, my God. Well, that just freaked out the kid, of course. You know what I'm saying? After that, I had a conversation with the trainer, and he said, don't you ever, ever, ever do that again. And that's where you start this process of slowing down the brain and the crisis. Well, these ladies, I mean, everything speeds up, and this is what's happening. He'd, you know, here's a clear sign grave robbers didn't take the, you know, the body. Would they have undressed the body? <laughs> okay. Body wrapped in cloth, let's steal it. Should we undress the body that's wrapped in cloth and hold the body itself and run away? That's not logical by any means, right? Why would anybody do that? And then they carefully folded the headdress and left it in the tomb, you know? So they put this in the story to show us that Jesus was saying, this is me, guys. Verse 19, it says... On the evening of the final day of the week when the disciples were together, when the doors, uh, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoy, overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, someone's not there. Someone famous. Who's not there? Do you remember? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I mean, Thomas went on to be a great disciple, went on to, I mean, uh, I, I think he went to, the, the uh, history tells us he went to India and all that, but he will always be known as Doubting Thomas. You know what I'm saying? Oh, man. You know, Peter will always, I mean, you know, the, Peter, you know, you, you think of Peter. Well, Peter rejected Christ, you know, and now you have Doubting Thomas. 
Life can be just cruel, right? You get these nicknames and they just stick. But what did Peter say? I mean, what did Thomas say? I don't believe you guys. I don't believe all of you. What did you guys do last night? What did you have the drink last night? See, what I love about Jesus is eight days later, he shows up. And instead of whacking Thomas upside the back of the head, you know, like any one of us probably would have, he said, hey, Tom, come, come on over here. Look at me. Here, look at this. Here, touch this. He wanted to show Thomas. Jesus treats Peter the same way. Peter folds in the face of the enemy. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know who that is. Who, me? Run around with, with him? No, no, no. I, mm-hmm. You know? And yet, he comes and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? See, our God's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He's not a God that's just going to come and whack us upside the head. No matter what type of father or mother we grew up with, don't place God in that same category unless they were just the most phenomenal parent you could ever have in your life. You know what I'm saying? Because God is so different. I think Jesus would have... Uh, you know, talk with Jesus, uh, Judas and give him a second chance if he would have asked for it. Jesus' little, little brother James, who grew up in the same household as, as the Son of God, imagine that. You know, Brandon has enough problems right now growing up with little Grayson in the family. He's like, why do I always have to be quiet? Because he's sleeping, that's why. But imagine being perfect Jesus and not perfect James. You know what I'm saying? But James goes on to become this amazing leader of the church after he refused to follow Jesus at the beginning. Why? Is it because he was so awesome? No. It's because of the grace and mercy of the Son of God, our second chance God. So for the next 40 days, well, Jesus, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, hundreds of people saw Jesus. So by the time Peter preaches in public in Jerusalem, no one was saying, hey, well, did the resurrection actually happen? No, they knew. They wanted to come and hear what was going on because they knew what happened. They weren't all followers, but, but they couldn't explain what happened either, so they wanted to figure it out. His resurrection proved who he said he was, and that he could do what he said he would do. So the empty cross goes with the empty tomb. And for believers, we also need to remember the empty tomb. I mean, you know, we we talk a lot about the cross. We don't necessarily talk a lot about the empty tomb. You know, we wear a cross pendant, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, today's in an age, would we wear electric chairs? Our little medicine. You see what I'm saying? It was a torture device. But it comes to symbolize what he did. That kind of bookends. Jesus didn't just die. He killed death. That's what he did. And he just didn't come back, you know... he, he, he wasn't just another guy with a Messiah complex that, that, you know, complex that just really hacked off the authorities because he rose from the dead on what we call Easter. That is what we celebrate, that he rose from the tomb, that Christ paid the debt. That's what he paid. 
That life is what Christ gives us. In Colossians 1, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your heart on things above. Isn't that what we want for our children? We're like, oh, don't be such a draw. Just, it's not that big of a deal. But explain that to a six-year-old. Well, sometimes we're the six-year-olds when it comes to God. We need to set our hearts on the things above. Another part of the, you know, another part of the scriptures say, be in the world, but not of this world. So this world is about death and dying. The stench of death is, is really all around us. But when we come into it, we bring what the writer of Hebrews calls a sweet, perfuming fragrance to this world. We don't have to be a part of the death and dying. We're part of the life of Christ, and that's what we should present to others, a preserving fragrance to the world. If you have been raised with Christ, then we need to set our hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He was the one who took the shame to the cross, so we don't have to live in the shame. He was the one who hung naked on the cross, so we didn't have to. He, you know, he wraps us up in the royal robes of righteousness and tells the devil and the world to leave us alone. So we need to persevere. In verse 4 of, of uh, the Colossians there, it says, When Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Peter says, uh, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Easter is about. That is why we say Happy Easter to each other. And so in the resurrection, he has released a living hope that we hold on to. He is our hope because this world offers no guarantees. No guarantees. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you know, it, it, it's bad enough when an older person passes away that, that we dearly love, right? I read on the news that, that a football player actually, uh, you know, he had five children. He actually hit one of his children with the truck and, and the child passed away. I mean, how agonizing that can be. This world offers no guarantees. We don't know when we will die. We just know that the Lord knows the numbers of our days. But in the middle of all that, we have a guarantee that we will be with Christ when we die. That's an amazing guarantee. He rose from the grave and he defeated death. Therefore, if we believe in him, we defeat death. And we've been going through the book of Romans, and that's what I want to end with today. But Romans 8, the apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome and you know, all these people he'd never met, and, and he hasn't even been there yet. He's hoping to get there, but, but the Roman church knows him as, the, as one of the leaders in the churches. And he writes to them in Romans 8, um, 30, uh, 31, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How, how, will we, uh, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any change against, or any charge against those whom God has chosen? People can try to accuse you all day long, but guess what? God has chosen you. 
The devil will accuse us, but who's going to win? We are because we have right standing before God. It is God who justifies. Who is, who is he that condemns? God is the one in the right. Because Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So not only did, did God send Jesus to take my sins, He is there. Not only did He die for me, He is there at the right hand of God interceding for me, interceding for you. We get so wrapped up in this world. We get so wrapped up in our sin. We get so wrapped up in the things that we want in this life that we forget that He is interceding for us. That's salvation right there. No other religion can claim that, that God is interceding for you. Every other religion, God is out, you know, whatever their God is, is, is a negative thing. It's a, uh, you know, going to get you, going to kill you. If you don't do this, you've got to make this sacrifice. This God provided this sacrifice to save you from your sin. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. That is as, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be ever, 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 ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That right there says it all. Nothing we can do Nothing that can be thrown at us. Nothing that, that this life has to offer or tries to pry from you can separate you from the love of God. I want to say the only thing that can separate you from the love of God is yourself. When you believe the lies, when you believe everything that the world throws at you and you back away from God, it's you separating yourself. But the great thing is, God doesn't say, <laughs> forget you, fine, whatever. No, God is out on the road, as in the story of the prodigal son, saying, where is he at? Where is she at? I'm waiting for him to return. I'm waiting for her to return. And we're all like, oh, I got to grovel to God. I got to grovel to God. And God's like, get off your feet here. Put the robe on. Let's kill the fatted calf. He is back. She is back. And we need to celebrate. That's the love that the Lord has for you. Well, let's stand as the worship team comes up. And we will exit on a wonderful note. And then we will go do some stuff for the kids. Please stick around for some finger foods and everything. But let's pray as they come. 
Lord, we are so thankful for you. We're so thankful that you chose to come down here to this earth. You weren't forced. You weren't conjoled. You chose to go through the pain. You chose to go through the stench of death. You chose to fight the devil, and you won. And we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you for rising from the dead, that we can have our hope in you, knowing that you rose from the dead, that we will rise from the dead also, that we will be with you in heaven. And I pray that we can hold on to that hope in this world. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he give you hope beyond anything you could imagine this week and this month and this year. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.